I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're talking with Dr. Evan Feigenbaum, vice chairman of the Polson Institute at the University of Chicago and the co-founder of its new digital venture, Macropolo. In October 2012, Dr. Feigenbaum co-authored an article in Foreign Policy with Bob Manning. It was titled A Tale of Two Asias. And in that article, they argued that two Asias were emerging, each on a distinctive trajectory. An economic Asia, characterized by positive sum trade, investment, and the growing integration of the region's economies, and a security Asia, beset by nationalism, and the tendency of countries, even as they traded and grew together, to hold clashing security concepts and pursue competition against perceived rivals. The existence of these two divergent ages, his article argued, contradicts the theory of a peaceful and prosperous Asian century. Indeed, the article predicted it had the potential not just to complicate economic development, but lock the region into debilitating patterns of rivalry. In our podcast today, we're going to discuss developments that have transpired over the past five years since the article was published. What are the trends in Asia? Has the divergence between economics and security that Evan and Bob wrote about become sharper or more blurred? And what roles have China and the U.S. played in this process? So we're delighted, Evan, that you could join us today. Thanks for having me. So let's start talking about um, your notion that these are two separate but related Asias that uh, were colliding, as you said, in 2012 to shape the future of the region. So what are the key characteristics of each of these spheres, and do they encompass the same actors? Right. Well, great. You know, as you said, uh, I wrote this piece with Bob Manning back in 2012, and it was meant to be a conceptual piece because we were concerned about the trajectory that we were seeing in the region, but also a little bit about the debate in the United States, which we thought was missing some of these trends. From the vantage point of 2018, it's hard to remember what 2012 was like. Barack Obama was still in his first term. Xi Jinping was not even in power yet. Uh, Japan had a non-liberal Democratic Party government, and most people in the United States had never even heard of TPP. The U.S. was in it, but not really to win it until the second term when the negotiations became much more intense. So on the one hand, that seems like a very different time in Asia, but I think a lot of the trends and trajectories that we saw have, as you implied in the setup, essentially come to pass. We really made three very, very simple points. Um, The first was that there was more than one way, as you said, to tell the story of Asia over the last quarter century. And if you told the story principally through an economic lens, we called this economic Asia, you told essentially a positive sum Dr. Jekyll story of countries trading, building, and investing together. But on the other hand, if you told it as a security story, uh, you got more of a Mr. Hyde story, where the same countries that often traded with each other were beset by powerful nationalisms, irredentist claims, and pathologies that people thought had been frozen in time were coming back to the fore. Um, The second thing is... We thought that, particularly after the Asian financial crisis of 1997 and 98, that economic Asia was decidedly winning the contest in the push and pull between those two. 
But in the year or two before we wrote this article in 2012, we had the view that Security Asia had roared back with a vengeance. Now, from the vantage point of 2018, many people look at this and they say security competition in the region is a function of Xi Jinping and China's assertiveness. But remember, we wrote this piece before she was in power, which happened at the end of 2012 at the Party Congress. So you could already see the patterns there. And what we thought was happening was that debilitating security competition had the potential to overwhelm this positive sum economic story. And then last, we were concerned about the position of the United States because uh, a region that was characterized more by those economic integration patterns would, we believed, be necessarily more pan-Asian with the role of the United States receding in relative terms, even if it grew in absolute terms. Security Asia, by contrast, would be one in which the U.S. as a major security provider would assure its own centrality, but it would be a very destabilized and destabilizing region. So the U.S. was kind of on the horns of a dilemma. It wanted a region that was characterized by positive sum interaction, but it, its own centrality was going to fade. The debilitating competition was one in which the U.S. would be central, but that Asia really was not the one the U.S. had been striving for in the post-Cold War period. So we thought the U.S. needed to think a little bit more creatively about how it approached the region at that time. Well, we'll get to the role of the U.S. a little bit more in depth later. But first, I want to ask you about what you saw as the main drivers for these two separate Asias. And uh, did you see these two Asias as opposed to one another, or did you see them as overlapping? Well, I think for a long time, the presumption that was that they ran in parallel lines. Um, when people told the story of an Asian century, it was one in which the business of Asia was essentially business. And so while powerful nationalisms would continue to exist in the region and had long existed, um, the positive sum interaction of trade and investment was having a decisive impact in the region. That didn't mean the security competition had gone away, but the story that we thought too many people were telling about the region was one of a straight line economic trajectory toward greater economic integration, peace, prosperity, and so on. Um, in effect, you could say that economic and security Asia were running in parallel lines because one was not overwhelming the other in a debilitating way. By 2010, 2011, our view was that these were no longer running in parallel lines. They were very much in collision. And as I said in answer to your first question, that security competition had roared back with a vengeance. And we were beginning to see the sprouts of how these pathologies could really begin to overwhelm the positive economic elements. And I think that's been borne out. If you look, for instance, at the way China is beginning to use economic tools as a coercive instrument in a more systematic way, it's using economic instruments, not necessarily in a positive some way, but as an instrument of its political goals and as a reflection of the security competition with other states. And so you have this interesting contradiction now where in a lot of bilateral interactions, countries that are very big trading partners with each other or big investment partners with each other, nonetheless are locked into clashing security concepts. And China, let's face it, is very much at the center of that story of the last few years. So if you look at what has transpired since 2012, do, do you see that the dynamics in the region are as you predicted? Um, what has surprised you about the trends that have um, actually evolved since you wrote the article? 
Yeah, I think there's a lot about what's happened in the region that is very much as we predicted. And when I look back to, as I said, something that we wrote in the pre-Xi Jinping, uh, pre-Barack Obama second term, pre-TPP era, I think we called a lot of things correctly with respect to what we worried about. Um, security competition has, if anything, intensified over the last few years. And so the view that economic integration would somehow mitigate security competition has turned out really to have a lot of false promise and not to be the case. Now, that doesn't mean war is going to break out tomorrow, but it does mean, I think, that a lot of countries in the region are being locked into clashing security concepts in ways that can be very debilitating for the region if you pull the thread over 5, 10, 15 years. That was the core of what we worried about, and I think that's been borne out. I think a few things have surprised me. Um, The most important of those is the gradual withdrawal of the U.S. from the economic space writ large in the region. And by withdrawal from the economic space, I don't mean in terms of business. It's not that the U.S. is becoming irrelevant to Asia's economic future. Um, If you look at the ASEAN countries, for instance, there's $225 plus billion in U.S. foreign direct investment in ASEAN countries alone. The U.S. is still the big number one source of FDI in Australia and in other places as well. So American business remains relevant, and the U.S. is still an important economic player. But in terms of things like rule setting, norm setting, standard setting, and also being a demand driver through which Asian economies can power their way to prosperity. The U.S. role in Asia's economic space, while increasing in absolute terms, is declining in relative terms. Now, we had warned of that in the article and the expectation that the U.S. would try to arrest that. You can say the TPP negotiation was part of the attempt to do that, but the net-net, as we look from the vantage point of 2018, is that the U.S. is much less of a player in that space, and Asian countries themselves, on a pan-regional basis, with the TPP-11, for example, have stepped into the vacuum, with the U.S. becoming less central. That's precisely what we warned about, but we had expected the U.S., and I certainly hoped that the U.S. would step into the breach. I think the other thing that surprised me, as I implied earlier when I mentioned economic coercion from China, is the way that economics and security have blurred in the foreign policies of certain countries. Um, China's at the center of that, but it's not the only one. But the use of economic instruments to further security and political ends, that's definitely taken on uh, a new intensity over the last few years. And then one more thing to say about the United States, and that's that as Washington has kind of Uh, become a more complicated place on trade and investment debates, the debates about trade agreements, for example, uh, big multilaterals like TPP. It's been interesting as somebody who no longer lives in Washington but lives in flyover country in the Midwest to watch governors of states step into that breach. There are a lot of governors all over the United States. I live in the Midwest, Governor Snyder in Michigan, Governor Holcomb in Indiana, who are really aggressively looking at trade and investment through the prism of jobs and growth for their states. And as the Washington debate has changed shape with foreign policy implications, that local level, I think, has stepped in in ways that were not entirely foreseeable and are very positive from the vantage point of today. So as the U.S. emphasis on participating in economic Asia uh, has declined, uh, its desire to participate in security Asia has grown. Uh, We saw this under President Obama with the pivot to Asia, 
Uh, and we see this, I think, in the Trump administration. Uh, there's the possible revival of the Quad featuring the United States, Japan, Australia, and India. We have a new, evolving, free, and open Indo-Pacific strategy. So is this emphasis now on security-focused Asia, is this detrimental to the region? Um, and is it undermining the potential for the success of economic Asia? Well, I think it's positive, but it's only half the story. And that's been true since we wrote that piece in 2012, and it continues to be the case today. You know, the United States was a leader in Asia in the post-war period, by which I mean the post-World War II period, but especially since the 1960s, which was the period in which the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty was signed and then Asian economies began to really grow. U.S. leadership was premised on both security and economic pillars. On the security side, the U.S. was the principal provider of security-related public goods for many countries in Asia. It's allies, of course, but many other countries too. And the instruments of that were alliances and forward-deployed military presence, carrier battle groups, and so on. So reinvigorating and reinforcing that role at a time of security uncertainty and security competition, but also at a time, let's be frank, when China has scared many of its neighbors silly, is, I think, positive sum both for the region and for the U.S. role in the region. The problem is that that wasn't the end of the story of American leadership. American leadership was also premised on, as we discussed a little earlier, being a principal provider, if not the principal provider, of economic-related public goods and other benefits. One expression of that was that the U.S. was a source of demand for export-led Asian economies to power their way to prosperity, but also that the U.S. was a leader on regional and global trade liberalization. So if you think about it through that prism, the security partnerships and the reinvigoration of an American security role is fine. But in the absence of things happening on the other pillar, where the U.S. role as a demand driver continues to be important, but isn't the same as it was in the 1960s and 70s, because intra-Asian demand and other global sources of demand become important to Asian economies as well. And also, as the U.S. recedes from rule-setting, norm-setting, standard-setting on trade and investment in a region, and regional countries themselves, through the TPP-11 and other agreements, step into the breach, um, that, I think, threatens the U.S. role. So it's not enough to just be a security partner and provider. And I have a joke I've used here at CSIS where I say the U.S. is in danger of becoming like the Hessians, the Hessians of Asia, the Hessians being George Washington's rented German mercenaries during the Revolutionary War. We don't want to be just viewed as a security partner and provider. We need to be more than that in a region where the business of the region is still business in some ways. So I think that's important. I think we also need to be mindful of the fact that history and nationalism, not ideology, have been the drivers of a lot of development in modern Asia and continue to be. You know, in the Vietnam period, we made the mistake of thinking that ideology was everything. We've tended to view uh, Vietnamese communism as the pointy tip of the spear of communist expansion, including from China in the region. And it turned out in the aftermath that uh, history and nationalism mattered a lot. And contrary to that view, Vietnam turned out to be China's uh, uh, China's uh, deep and abiding foe in many ways. So we need to remember that history and nationalism still matter. And despite ideological cohesion among democracies 
in Asia and across the Pacific, um, countries still have their own national interests. And so as democracies stitch themselves together, uh, we uh, need to be mindful, I think, of the many ways in which uh, our national interests both come together and sometimes do collide. So let's talk more about uh, China's role in economic Asia and security Asia. And as you say, its economic statecraft um, is really blurring the two and using economics for security ends. In 2013, President Xi Jinping unveiled uh, what is now known as the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, which uh, appears to be a very ambitious uh, plan that focuses on connecting economies throughout Asia, extending into Europe and Africa, recently even into Latin America and the Arctic. Uh, so does this plan encourage the pan-Asian economic sphere that you've described, or have dynamics shifted more towards China dominating this economic sphere? And is China's role a positive one or a negative one? I think the first thing to say is that the Belt and Road has thrown a lot of people for a loop in the United States, in India, in Japan, in other places as well, including recipient countries, for that matter, who are on the receiving end of Chinese project finance. Part of the reason is because of the staggering ambition of it in theory and on paper, and because of the eye-popping sums of money that seem to accompany President Xi Jinping and other leaders every time they land in some capital around the world, from Serbia to Mexico to Poland to you name your country. Um, but I think from an American vantage point, the first thing to do is to remember our own history on the question of connectivity, particularly in Asia. Um, and the U.S. has forgotten a lot of that history. In the mid-2000s, I was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Central Asia and then for South Asia. And my boss, then Secretary of State Condi Rice, not only reorganized the State Department, moving Central Asian countries from a westward focused bureau, the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs, into an Asia-focused bureau. But in trying to put the Asia back in Central Asia, as Condi put it, um, was interested in the way in which the United States could play a catalytic role in helping the region stitch together in ways that had been the historical norm, but had ceased to be the historical norm in more recent decades and centuries. Um, so at that point, the U.S. was the one doing the proposing and the Chinese were doing quite a lot of trashing, actually, of our ideas. Just to give you a few examples, uh, the United States was very much at the center of an electricity integration discussion that took place with an Istanbul process and meetings beyond. We were working closely with the Asian Development Bank and the World Bank on roads and power lines in the region. The United States was pushing for things like a CARIC plus three process, CARIC being the Central Asia Regional Economic Cooperation Program, which brings together a group of countries in Eurasia, but including China, by the way, but also six multilateral development banks, ADB, EBRD, World Bank, Islamic Bank, and so on. Um, so the U.S. was proposing all of these things. And China, in the pages of the People's Daily and other newspapers and state media, was trashing all of these ideas and essentially saying the U.S. was scheming to stitch the region together. How dare we do this? And so on. So it's interesting now that the other foot wears the shoe uh, to see the Chinese doing the proposing and everybody else thrown for a loop, as I said before. So I think if we step back and we look at the Belt and Road through that history, 
our own history, it would be useful because rather than being reactive to a Chinese initiative and on defense, uh, the U.S. could be proactive and ask a few more elemental questions. For instance, uh, do we have an interest, the United States, in promoting connectivity in Asia? And if so, uh, what are the manifestations of that and what are the partnerships that we need? Viewed in that context, what China is doing would be one piece of a larger puzzle we would recognize that China did not invent connectivity in Asia. It did not begin in 2013. It did not spring from Xi Jinping's head like Athena from Zeus's head. And we would think in terms of a wider variety of partnerships, including the partnerships we had before with Japan, with India, with the IFIs, and so on, the IFIs being the international financial institutions. Um, in that context, there may be places where our interest overlaps with things that China's doing in the Belt and Road and other places where it absolutely does not. I think part of the problem is that the Belt and Road is a bilateral Chinese initiative, which means it's a contrast to the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is a multilateral development bank. It's not clear how the procurement rules function. Are they open to foreign companies or not? Can we shape the standards or not? It's harder to do that in a single country bilateral initiative, which makes me somewhat suspicious of what's happening with the Belt and Road. And so I think it bears a lot of watching. Um, but the key thing, I think, is also for the U.S. to, as I said, put all of this in perspective. Connectivity itself is not a test of global order because the U.S. itself promoted connectivity and has an interest in doing so. It's a question of how countries promote connectivity. And at the end of the day, the name of the game in connectivity is addition and multiplication. It's not subtraction. And so just as China trashed our ideas and was promoting subtraction, um, we need to find a way to try to push them hard on standards and rules and on the interests of recipient countries. But as we used to do, promote options and opportunities uh, with a great variety of partners, not just China. And I think if you look at the Belt and Road through that larger lens, um, then the U.S. can see its own interests on connectivity a little clearer than just being on defense and reactive. So in the future years to come, China's economy is expected to slow down. Uh, and so much of China's influence seems to be very much tied up with its successful economy, its resources that it can use to fund a uh, country's infrastructure projects, for example. So as its economy slows down, do you think this ultimately means a reduced role for China uh, in its ambition to foster this uh, Asian community? Um, or, or do you think what we will ultimately see emerge is a real dominant uh, China in Asia? What's, what's the China factor in the future of Asia? Look, Ch China's grown a lot. So when I first went to China as a student in 1985, it was obviously a very different China than it is today. So China is the world's second largest economy in nominal GDP. It's the largest trader, largest manufacturer by gross value add. It's the largest oil importer. Um, it's an important economy. Um, and if the Chinese economy grows more slowly but with higher quality growth, um, then that's consistent with some of the rhetorical commitments around reform that Chinese leaders themselves have made. I'm saying that as a way of arguing to you that even if China slows, unless it precipitously falls off the cliff, China is just going to be a factor in the life of Asia, economic and security, for as far as mine eyes can see. Um, that being the case, it affects the way we 
think about the future. Um, one piece of that, as your question implied, is the Belt and Road. Um, I think there's a lot of hyperbole, including from China, around the Belt and Road. Some of those pledges are eye-popping. They may never materialize. But in many cases, they don't have to materialize. I think part of the problem with looking at the Belt and Road in the aggregate is that at the granular level, country by country, project by project, there will still be things happening even if the pledges don't materialize. When President Xi Jinping went to Pakistan a few years ago, he pledged something like 46 or $47 billion. It was a big headline announcement. Okay. If two-tenths of that, one-fifth of that actually materialize, you know, that's still uh, you know, about $10 billion. You can do quite a lot in the power generation space or in the road building space. With $10 billion, you don't necessarily need $46 billion. In countries like Tajikistan or Cambodia, um, even smaller pledges that don't meet the headline commitments can still do a lot. The other thing to say is I think for the United States, a lot of the questions we should be asking are still the same. In two-thirds of Asia, the United States is not a major economic factor. Uh, all of Central Asia, uh, much of South Asia minus India, and big swaths of mainland Southeast Asia as well, places like Laos or Myanmar. Um, the U.S. isn't really a player the way other economies are. If you look at the direction of trade figures, if you look at the investment figures. Um, and so uh, that really does raise questions for the United States about whether it wants to think about Asia in a more integrated way, east, central, south, or think about the region in a way that circumscribes, circumscribes its role geographically and functionally around the region. Um, so I don't think we can presume China's going to go away. And I also think that many of the manifestations of Chinese influence are also going to change over time. One example I would call your attention to is something like technology standards. There are a lot of technologies where China is deploying technologies to scale in ways that we're not seeing in other places. One example, we published a paper at the Paulson Institute on ultra-high voltage power lines. This is a technology that the Chinese are building. They're building a lot of high voltage power lines. And because they're building it, they are a big consumer, but increasingly they also have the ambition to be the exporter. So you can think of China using its sheer market power and its role as an exporter and its role through instruments like the Belt and Road to essentially take its indigenous technology standards and export them in an attempt to become the default global standard setter. For a long time, we've never thought of Chinese companies being dominant globally. They're the dominant brands domestically because of Chinese protectionism and other factors. But we never think of Chinese brands globally. But in infrastructure construction and in some areas, I think that's changing. Hydropower, for instance, you know, 50 plus percent of the market share in dam construction is Sino Hydro, one company. Um, I read that in, in somebody's study recently. And I think on nuclear reactor technology for civil nuclear reactors, China's doing quite a bit. Um, China's making a big play in areas like biotech and pharmaceuticals and artificial intelligence. And I fully expect China's going to try to be the default standard setter in some of those areas. Is that meaningful for the United States? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't at the strategic level, but for U.S. companies, it could be very meaningful. And I think in terms of the choices consumers have and in terms of the way the region is shaped over time, it will be too. So let's not presume that China is just going to disappear, even a slower-growing China. So before we wrap up, are there any other trends as you look forward to the future? What do you think the Asian landscape is going to look like in the next five years? And what do you think will be the main determining factors? Will it be the United States? Will it be China? Will it be something that we're not thinking about today? Well, I think all of the above are going to be meaningful. I think the most important thing to watch is what happens 
among Asian countries themselves in the push and pull between the U.S. and China as security competition between those two intensifies. You know, as the U.S. withdrew from TPP, it was regional countries that stepped into the breach, Japan, Australia, the TPP-11. So if you think about the way the debate around TPP was framed a few years ago, it was often said that it was a contest between American rules versus Chinese rules. The implication, if you pull that thread being, that if the U.S. rules didn't predominate and the U.S. withdrew, Chinese rules would win the day. That actually isn't what's happened. It's not Chinese rules, but TPP-11 rules set by other countries in the region, not the United States, although borrowing many of the things, and some of the things at least, that the United States was looking to see in the TPP text. Um, But I think this dynamic among non-China, non-U.S. Asian countries, both in the economic area, but also in the security area, as we see the blossoming of partnerships between Japan and India, for example, uh, or Australia and Japan in some areas, bears close watching and close scrutiny. Um, The second thing, I think, is the way the trade debate plays out in the United States going forward. As I said, I live in the middle of the country, and there, when you talk to governors, Republican or Democrat, they look at it often through the prism of jobs and growth, and they say, give me more of that for my state. Give me more of that for my city. It doesn't have the same national security foreign policy dimension that you hear in Washington, but it also has a certain resonance at the local level that leads a lot of governors to talk about trade and investment in a retail-oriented way. Um, Given what's happened in the trade debate in the United States, and that is in a sense, bipartisan. There's a lot of skepticism among politicians of both parties, Democrat and Republican, of the kinds of trade agreements the U.S. has been doing. We heard it from Senator Sanders. We heard it from President Trump during the campaign. And so, you know, you hear it from all over the political spectrum. And so people who are advocates for trade have to find a way to make the retail case again at the local level, as I've seen some governors around the country do. Because if that doesn't happen, I fear that the trade debate will become increasingly debilitating in terms of the U.S. role in what I said at the beginning we called economic Asia. And that has vast implications for the way the future of the region looks. An Asian that's more pan-Asian and less trans-Pacific is one in which the U.S., as I said, really becomes more of a security provider and is still relevant in business terms, but plays a very different role than it did in the last, you know, uh, half century of Asian history. And I think that bears watching as well. We've been talking with Dr. Evan Feigenbaum, who is vice chairman of the Paulson Institute at the University of Chicago and the co-founder of Macro Polo. Thanks so much for joining us, Evan. Great insights. Thanks, Bonnie.